Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Abraham Singer, um, who's going to talk to us about The Form of the Firm, A Normative Political Theory of the Corporation. This book was published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Dr. Singer takes a look at essentially the idea of the firm itself, corporate firms as we often call them, Um, but he goes into some definitions within the book and thinking about the firm within liberal democratic societies. This is a fascinating exploration of an entity that we often don't pay all that much attention to within political science. Um, But I will let Mr. Dr. Singer explain that to us. So first, I'd like to welcome Abraham Singer to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Uh, Thank you for having me. Sure. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project? Um, sure. So, uh, th- so this book grew out of my, uh, PhD dissertation and, um, but I suppose I, I could go a, a step further back, which is I was originally interested in cooperatives. I had spent a little bit of time working with cooperatives in, in undergrad and in between undergraduate and graduate school. And initially my idea was that I was going to write this dissertation sort of defending co-ops as like the just form of economic organization. Um, and as I, I started doing that, I became more interested in the larger uh, the larger category that co-ops fit in, which is firms generally. And I became much more interested in just what is the firm and what are the normative uh, valences and the normative aspects of firms and corporate firms generally. Uh, and so that sort of just launched this this um, this piece of work and this this uh, research program. And essentially, what happened was you know I started looking at different disciplines and seeing that they all got part of the picture, but not all of it. So political theorists uh, and political philosophy generally is really interested in the state or society as a whole, the sort of macro level structural view. Um, But there isn't a lot of interest or a lot of research on these sort of middle categories like the firm. And those that do, so stuff on workplace democracy, which we can talk a little bit more about later on, um, tends to, you know, has has some pretty well-developed theories and, and interesting ideas about that, but they tend to take less seriously the economic nature of these organizations. Uh, and so I sort of wanted to understand the normative aspects of firms and of corporations while taking the economics of them seriously. Um, and then if you looked at, you know, the economic literature, you see it's kind of the opposite, where they have these really well-worked out economic theories of, of the firm and efficiency, but uh, are far less concerned with the normativity and the morality of these organizations. And so it, the idea is really to try and bring all those things together and really try to give a theory of the firm that takes the normative uh, aspects of it seriously while also being mindful of its economics. 
And so in in the book, you you do an interesting thing in terms of marrying. I, I, that's the way I sort of understood it, sort of marrying these two schools of thought from economics on one side um, and, and to, a, to a degree also business um, mm-hmm. and on the other side, political theory um, in terms of understanding sort of structure and function of the firm. Is that more or less what's sort of going on in the book? Yeah, I think something like that, right? That, you know, the idea is that if you want to understand the moral dimensions of this sort of institution, you need to sort of take seriously why it exists and what, what sort of work it's doing. And, and you dive into that in terms of what, what is the role of the firm? What do we understand these entities to be? um, And how does that, how does that sort of operate within um, our understandings, not only of the political society, the the sort of modern liberalism, but also the economic society um, that you talk about in terms of capitalism? Yeah. So, I mean, and this is sort of, you know, in broad strokes, this is kind of what the book is about, which is to try and say, look, um, one of the things that 20th century economic theory uh, really sh- uh unveiled and made clear to a lot of people was how the firm is distinct from other aspects of the economy, specifically markets and market exchanges. And the idea essentially is that uh, firms exist um, because they're able to reduce transaction costs and thereby uh, facilitate cooperation in ways more efficiently than the market can using prices and, you know, and, and uh, bargaining and exchanges. And so the idea is that, um, Part of the way the firm works or part of the work that the firm does, if we want to think of it that way, is contributes to efficiency by allowing people to cooperate uh, in ways that would be unavailable to them on the open market. Uh, and so the idea is that um, if you take that seriously, then, um, well, a, a number of things happen. So one is that, uh, first of all, you have to sort of understand that the existence of authority and hierarchy uh and these sorts of organizational forms have an economic basis, right? So, you know, the way the sort of political thinking about hierarchy and, and about organization and community and all of these things uh, aren't merely just things that we throw into the economy, but they're things that the economy kind of develops in certain ways. Um, but it also means that the way we think normatively about these institutions is going to be constrained uh, by concerns for efficiency, and and so in that context, you sort of make an interesting argument that um, you're not you're not necessarily a cheerleader for or a detractor from capitalism, um, but that you understand the positioning of capitalism and the firm within it as part of what we sort of think about in a sort of the political theory project. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, so this this kept on happening when I would tell people about the book, and they'd sort of say like, "Oh, so you're are you criticizing capitalism, or is this a defense of capitalism?" And I would always have these really underwhelming responses, where I'd sort of say like, "I don't know," um, and and that's in part because I think if you're trying to ask the question, "How should firms be structured? What sorts of ethical standards ought we to hold firms to?" Uh, you have to presuppose certain things. Uh, you know, in asking the question, you're presupposing that business firms exist. And so you're presupposing certain facts about the landscape as, the, as you take them. So the way I sort of approach it is I kind of take markets and broadly speaking, free markets um, 
as a given, not necessarily because I think they're necessarily morally great, but just because methodologically you kind of need to take that for granted and kind of hold those uh, constant in order to look at what we should do with the firm, this thing that we find within modern capitalist societies and modern markets. Um, yeah. Um, and and you, you do a really nice job, a very, to some degree, um, clear job um, defining the firm and, and sort of discussing the aspects that it has that makes it, you know, this sort of efficient component within the economic and political sphere. Um, can I ask you to go through that sort of unpacking of what is inherent within firms? Um, as you note also in the book, you say that they are forms of, um, of co-ops, but that they are, in fact, distinct as well. Yeah. So, so I mean, it, it's helpful so to maybe distinguish firms from markets. And this is really sure. where um, I try and in the first sort of third of the book, I try and really unpack and defend uh, the theory of Ronald Coase, which is just very influential for me. Um, and, it, and it's sort of strangely not as well known in political theory as it should be. Um and, and what Ronald Coase and Oliver Williamson later argued, I think quite persuasively, is that it, people, people sort of confound these things. They sort of speak of markets and they speak of firms within markets and they compete. But they're far less good at understanding, well, why markets exist, right? So if you take the standard defense of free markets, uh, you know, markets are great. Markets do all these wonderful things, you know, invisible hand, all this stuff. And so then it's sort of bizarre and seems like a kind of strange thing that markets are dominated by these large bureaucracies and there's these large institutions within which we don't find anything like markets uh, happening, right? Um, to use Alfred Chandler's term, uh, instead of the invisible hand of the market, what you see is the visible hand of the foreman, the visible hand of the manager organizing stuff within firms. And so it's sort of a strange puzzle. Like, why does that happen? And so what Ronald Coase argued, and I sort of gestured at this before, is that firms exist because they are able to overcome transaction costs. And we can talk a little bit more about that in a second. But what that really means for him, and I take this you know, more or less to be right, is that the distinction between firms and markets is that in markets, uh, cooperator, cooperation is mediated through prices, that is, I don't, I don't think like, oh, I'm going to go cooperate with the coffee maker there. It's there's a price for coffee and I go buy that coffee and that person then, you know, cooperates with me sort of accidentally through the price mechanism. Uh, and, you know, you could go through the whole supply chain like that. But the difference is that within a firm, instead of being instead of cooperation happening through prices, cooperation happens through the organization of a planner or a manager. And, you know, so that's sort of the major distinction between a firm and a market is that the firm is structured hierarchically or organizationally as opposed to through prices. Uh, yeah. And and so the firm, therefore, is actually less of a free market entity. It exists in the market. But as you say, throughout a lot of the book, it's very structured. Yeah, precisely. Right. Like, um, you know, one way to look at uh, firms is to see them as a nexus of market failures, right? Like every every single thing that happens within a firm could potentially be organized through a market. It would just be really, really inefficient to do so, right? So, so like, um, so I teach at a business school, and I so I, I often try to teach this to my students. The way I sort of do is, you could imagine, um, 
you know, secretarial services, each, you know, the phone gets, you know, a phone rings and you need somebody to answer that phone. You could set up an auction right there, right? You can say, okay, how much money does it buy? And someone says 10 cents. And then somebody tries to underbid them and says eight cents, you know, whatever. Um, but of course, by the time you found the price that would get somebody to answer the phone, the phone would stop ringing. It would just be really, really inefficient to do it that way, right? To the point that we don't even, it sounds absurd to think of it. Um, and so you know, in some ways, what's going on within firms is a type of cooperation that just happens better without markets, that happens better if you do it hierarchically, organizationally, bureaucratic, you know, all the, all these things that we tend to associate with politics, right. um, not, not the sort of market mechanisms of prices and competition and, and, and that sort of stuff. Um, and so I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, Robert Koss and his theory of the firm, mm -hmm. as you note. Um, but you also have an interesting reference through, sort of threaded through the book with regard to um, various different writings that he had and the interpretation of those writings by, as you call them, the Chicago School um, theorists, uh, and how that, to some degree, perhaps is where we find ourselves sort of distant from our understanding of firms themselves and and sort of how they operate and possibly how they should be engaged politically. Yeah, so uh, Ronald Coase is often uh, thought of, and you know, correctly as one of the founders of what's called the Chicago School of Economics, of the Chicago School of Law and Economics. And uh, a big part of the book, in some, you know, one way of thinking about it is one of one of the things I'm trying to do is disentangle the Coasean legacy from the legacy of the Chicago School. That is, people tend to. Um, wrap these things up together. And so then Ronald Coase just looks like another person who's advocating these very, um, you know, unconstrained markets. And, and I think, you know, you could even look at the Chicago School as not just being about unconstrained markets, but trying to see everything in terms of markets and market logic. And a big part of what I try to do is say, look, Coase, Co you know, Coase wrote a lot of things. Um, but they're they're distinct, and and he has you know there's two sort of legacies of Coase's work. One comes from this uh, 1937 article, "The Nature of the Firm," which gives that transaction cost theory of the firm that I was just trying to unpack. And from that, you get this this tradition of transaction cost economics, which looks at different sorts of institutions and how they're able to facilitate cooperation in different ways because of their different comparative advantages. Uh, but he also uh, probably more famously wrote this article in 1960 called The Problem of Social Cost, um, which uh, which is what the, the so-called Coase theorem comes from. And this essentially, I'm going to, uh, this is going to be far too simplistic um, for those who are really committed to this, so, so forgive me. Um, but the well, many idea, of us are political theorists who haven't read all of Coase's work, so go for yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, essentially the idea is that, um, uh, if you allow people to just bargain over th the uh, it's it's a it's about torts and about liability and essentially the idea is that if you allow people to bargain as freely as possible over um, you know just over costs and over who should pay whom for what damages are done the li it tends to be as efficient as if a if a court were to do it or if if things were assigned from from without um, this is this is 
again, a, a bit jumbled, but essentially the idea is that what you ought to do is intervene as little as possible and just sort of let people figure it out themselves. So let people sort it out themselves. Um, or at least that's the way a lot of people interpret it. And the idea that I get it in the book, uh, with, frankly, far more eloquently than I'm doing now, um, is that uh, the Chicago School of Economics and this very economic, you know, this the very economic way of looking at the world takes a lot of their cue from that article uh, in sort of saying like, right, what we need to do is, is just reduce barriers to bargaining and just sort of allow the invisible hand to kind of work in all of these areas all the way down. Uh, and what I want to, and what I try to argue in the book is that that tradition of Kosi's legacy is distinct from and kind of at odds with the 1937 work on the firm and institutions and transaction costs. And I try and make the argument that the first one, the one about institutions and transaction costs is the more compelling one and the one that we ought to keep. As opposed <laughs> to the second one, which is the one that seems to have been become more entrenched. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's right. Although, you know, so uh, in Coase's, uh Nobel acceptance speech, he sort of acknowledged both of these traditions. It sort of seemed to, I mean, this is, this is, this is controversial, but, but, you know, sort of seemed to really sort of say the transaction cost one was really good but yeah but uh the that's that's roughly right right that the the chicago school is this really influential school of economic thought uh not just in, in intellectually or academically but also in politics and policy has had a huge amount of impact um on the way we think about things uh it's, it's sort of the reason why this all matters for thinking about the firm is that uh chicago school scholars have really effectively tried to tie them together in a way where they say, look, what is a firm? A firm is just a private market, right? So, so they try and sort of, they start try and tie both of these legacies together, but in the process of just turning the firm back into a market uh, in ways that I, I don't find terribly persuasive. But essentially they have, you know, this, this idea of saying like, look, when your boss tells you to do something, um, that's just sort of a price and you can take it or leave it. Uh, and you know, once, once you look at it that way, it seems like why interfere with this? Just let people, you know, there's no, there's really no great morality to be had here. All you need to do is just allow people to respond to the price signals as they would. Um, and I just sort of think that doesn't really capture what it feels like or what it's actually like to work at a place, right? Like if your boss gives you a, a command, usually you don't just see it as a price. It's just sort of not, not what the, uh, the phenomenology of working actually is. Um, and, and that gets into the sort of this broader question of the political theory within the sort of analysis that you are bringing, you, you talk about sort of bringing a, an understanding of morality into the discussion, um, a discussion that oftentimes wants to push that aside, I think. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, sorry, uh, the... Which which tries to push which which aside? I'm that, sorry. That, that the question of morality mm -hmm. um, is one that you're sort of reintroducing in the discussion of the firm, um, in part because it has been to a degree pushed to the side um, if it's all transactional. Um, and to some degree driven by markets and price. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Right. So, so what I what I try to argue is that if you take the nature of the firm seriously and you take it seriously as this thing that's distinct from markets, that is where cooperation is being organized in this different institutional setting, um, then what I want to argue is that this actually reintroduces normativity and reintroduces these moral questions in some in maybe a slightly different fashion, but essentially that you. Um, but in a way that you can sort of push back against the pure transactional approach where all that's happening is people just, you know, responding to, to prices and to incentives. Uh, and the, the idea essentially is that um, why are firms able to overcome transaction costs more efficiently than the market? In part because they actually introduce different sorts of incentives, uh, incentives that are not as easily available on the open market. And I capture this in terms of, in a number of ways, but I capture this in terms of extrinsic and intrinsic incentives. And so essentially the idea is that the way markets work, and they work very well in many different ways um, of, of getting people to do certain things is by having prices fluctuate that then provides an incentive. You know, you get you get some material award for doing this and you know this, this encourages you to, to grow potatoes instead of green beans or whatever it is. Um, but that what firms do is they introduce certain things like organizational identity. They, they use social scripts that we find in our society, scripts about how to respond to hierarchy, how to work in teams, uh, how to interact with peers. And the idea is that these sorts of incentives work intrinsically. That is, we have certain types of uh, it's not we're not doing cost benefit calculations every time something happens in the office. We sort of naturally fall into a social script. That kind of takes over and we we sort of follow and cooperate with one another because of these social scripts and these sorts of social incentives. And and that's I mean, that's, again, sort of some of the differences that you're sort of unpacking within the book that distinguishes markets from the firm itself. Um, but in the in the sort of introductory chapter, you go through and you define out the aspects of the firm itself, uh, limited liability and so forth. Can you speak a little bit to that so that listeners have a greater sense of the sort of um, sort of distinguishing characteristics um, of a firm itself as opposed to the distinction from between firms and markets? Sure. Well, that maybe it's helpful there to, so we've talked about the distinction between firms and markets, but here we might distinguish between corporate firms and yes. firms generally, which would be to say that corporate firms are specific, are, are specific sorts of type of firms, specific types of legal entities distinct from say partnerships or sole proprietorships. And so, uh, Corporate firms as corporations have a number of um, key features. So one is that they have legal personality. So in the eyes of the law, the corporation is its own person capable of. And, and there it's important to recognize that this doesn't mean that they're human persons, um, which is, a, I think, a, an ambiguity a lot of people fall into when we're talking about these things, but that they're legal persons or persons in law in the sense of they're capable of holding property, they're capable of signing contracts, they're capable of suing and being sued and so forth. Um, Corporate for the corp corporate firms have limited liability for uh, the various parties that contract with them, uh, which means that people, you know, if a corporation is sued or if a corporation has debts, it's only the corporate assets that are uh, subject to those debts or those suits. The individual's uh, assets are not are not subject to it. Um, corporations have transferable shares. 
you know, so like I can buy a share of a certain corporation that I can sell it to somebody else. Um, corporations by law have centralized management with a board of directors. So there's a specific sort of governance structure that corporations come with. Um, and then the, le- the last feature is sort of the a bit more variable, but it's the empirical tendency that corporations tend to be owned by capital contributors. So people who by giving capital into the corporation, receive shares in return. Um, although, and we can talk a bit more about this, we see that uh, different types of corporations can actually assign shares differently. Um, so yeah, so th- those are the features of, a, of a, a corporation. And I'm largely talking about corporate firms, but it is important to note that um, not all corporations are business firms and not all business firms are corporations. And you do talk about that a little bit in terms of other examples of um, sort of corporations that we don't often think about, but that are in fact incorporated in many of the same manners as corporate firms. Um, can you give us a couple of examples? Because as I was reading through, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, of course, that's a corporation too. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you from my office in, at the Loyola University of Chicago, which is a corporation. Exactly. Um, universities are corporate. You know, so it, I always sort of chuckle at this because there's a, when people are criticizing various uh, measures that happen in universities, there's this chant that people say, which is the university is not a corporation. And it's one of those things where I always kind of agree with the politics of it, but I sort of curmudgeonly mutter to myself, in fact, it is. Uh, always has been. Um but yeah, so universities, nonprofits, um, you know, nonprofit corporations are corporations. Uh, cities are corporations. Um, churches, you know, so many ecclesiastical organizations are corporations. Uh, and they don't have all of the features there, so there might not be, you know, transferable shares, for instance. But those are corporations that have legal personality and certain types of limited liability with regards to their stakeholders. And a, and a lot of the time, they also have the sort of institutional hierarchical structure that you talk a lot about in terms of corporate firms. Yeah. You know, they'll have boards of directors. Exactly. And the types of hierarchy that, that are familiar to us from these sorts of corporate firms. Exactly. So I wanted to sort of ask you to take us through essentially the sort of diagram of the book itself, um, because it is a it's a complex book and um, and it has a number of different components to it. And you've talked a little bit about the sort of beginning of it in terms of understanding the firms in general and the literature on firms. But can you take us through at least in chunks uh, the sections of the book um, and what you discuss in them? Yeah, sure. I probably should have done that from the start. But um, but, uh, yeah, so it's broken down into three sections. And so the first section really tries to understand the different ways that the corporate firm has been understood from economic thought. Uh, And so I, I actually start with Adam Smith. And, and run through, you know, have a chapter sort of running from Ar- uh, Adam Smith to Karl Marx and the different ways that they tried to understand the corporate firm. Uh, and then I spent the bulk of the time in that first section talking about the 20th century uh, economic theorists that we've been talking about. So Ronald Coase, um, who articulates this theory of transaction costs, the Chicago School, which tries to say, no, 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 the firm really is a sort of market. Um, and then the managerialists, who I, I focus specifically on Burley and Means. And the main takeaway that I try and get from that chat, from that section, is that if you want to think morally or normatively about the firm, you have to take the efficiency of firms seriously. 
Um, that is, if you want to, if if you're thinking about how should firms be organized, how should firms be governed, what responsibilities do managers have, what rights should customers or workers or suppliers have against a, a corporate firm of some kind. Uh, you have to think about what type of institution the firm is and what sorts of constraints it operates under. And the big point that I try and take, and this is really, you know, taken from Coase, is that they they operate under certain types of efficiency constraints. Uh, I think the way I put it is efficiency ends up being something of a constitutional value of of firms. Uh, you know, so if you want to if you want to cr- critically engage with firms, you have to sort of take their efficiency. Uh, their efficiency rationale seriously. Um, and when you say efficiency rationale, yeah. we're talking about essentially, you know, producing the thing, whatever it is that the firm is producing with the fewest number of people, the most um, economic sort of efficiency, et cetera. Is that correct? Uh, slightly. Yeah. So, so, you know, so part of it might be the sort of cost benefit way of looking at things, but the other way is just to say it allows for cooperation to a greater degree than, than another alternative. Um, you know, it can hire more people, can create more things and therefore sell it to more people in some way. So it, you know, there, there are these sort of two ways of understanding efficient, you know, there's a number of ways of understanding efficiency. So one is this sort of cost benefit analysis way, but I'm sort of more influenced by, uh, the, the Paradian notion of efficiency, which says that if a state of affairs is more efficient, uh, than its alternative, if one person is made better off and nobody's made worse off. And so essentially the idea is that firms sort of allow cooperation amongst people who would like to cooperate with one another. And they do this on terms and in ways that are better than, than other alternatives. And that goes to the sort of discussion that you have with regard to the distinctions or the the sort of similarities between corporations and, and cooperatives, um, because they are actually doing fairly similar things. Yeah. I mean, the way I understand cooperatives is that they are corporations. They're just a different sort of corporation. Um, and they assign the decision-making rights or the rights that are associated with ownership, uh, namely the rights to make decisions and the rights to claim um, profit or uh, to claim dividends, um, that they assign those rights to specific parties. So the standard business corporation assigns those rights to people who contribute to cap contribute capital to the corporation or who buy those shares from those who have contributed capital. And what a workers cooperative is, it's a type of corporation where those rights are given to workers. And so again, it's a sort of operating similarly, but with different different ends to a degree. Yeah, to a degree, though, though I, I would I would say, you know, they also have to, you know, a workers cooperative that doesn't care about efficiency or its ability to survive marketplace competition won't be able to allow workers to cooperate for very long. That's true. Yeah. All right. So first first section of the book, we're talking about um, sort of this broad economic context of understanding of um, firms and um, corporations and so forth. Second section of the book. Yeah. So the second section of the book uh, tries to really nail down a critique of the Chicago school way of looking at firms, right? This way of saying all a firm is, is just a market by another name. It's a privately held market to use some of their, their language or a privately owned market uh, and tries to say, look, the, the reason why they're not the same, the reason why firms are really distinct from markets is a their their sort of hierarchical and institutional structure, but also because of the types of cooperation that they enable. And I introduced this idea, which I call norm governed productivity. 
And I started uh, mentioning before, but basically the idea of norm governed productivity is that um, cooperation within the firm isn't just governed by these uh, extrinsic incentives, these extrinsic material motivations. It's also um, instigated and mediated by this appeal to norms and normative scripts. Um, so like scripts of hierarchy, scripts of teamwork and so on. And the and idea, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and the idea is that if you take that, um, if you take that seriously, then it means that you have to recognize that people aren't always just responding to incentives based on free choice, right? A lot of times people will join a firm for incentives. You know, you, you want to, you accept the salary. And so then you agree to be an employee of this firm. But once you're there, you're not making these sort of cost benefit calculations based on some, you know, uh, you know, based on some preference schedule that you already have. Instead, what's happening is the workplace and the firm actually kind of organize your preferences in certain ways, such that you're responding to things without thinking about it and without reflection. And, and I want to argue that, that that fact, right, the fact that we're sort of subject to these normative scripts uh, gives rise to the normative question of whether they're the right sorts of scripts, right? Whether we are being, you know, we're cooperating according to hierarchy because that's sort of what happens or it's how we're socialized to, to act within these settings. But there's a question about whether this is the right sort of script or whether there's moral reasons to reject it or to try and change those scripts. And that's, again, where sort of the discussion of understanding of what these sort of hierarchical structures and the, the sort of um, behavior of the firm itself comes into the discussion that it's not simply, you know, a sort of um, the, the sort of individual's imperative to get a paycheck, um, that they are, in fact, you know, as we all do at, at, our, at our corporate, um, our corporatized <laughs> universities, exactly. uh, you know, sort of operating according to all kinds of norms and expectations um, in terms of how we do our job. Precisely. Uh, Precisely. And, you know, that's why I give chocolate to my students. So I get better evaluation. And part three, towards a more just corporate regime, law, governance and ethics. This is where political theory comes roaring back in. Yeah. Yeah. I try to, you know, so, so, right. So the first section, look, here's why, here's the economic theory. Here's its strengths. And I do want to try and say just one more thing about that, which is I try to do my best to try and give the strongest articulation of what I take the Chicago school argument to be. I find a lot of times people sort of dismiss it a bit too seriously. Uh, and I think it's actually a pretty subtle and, and, you know, powerful theory. I just think it completely overlooks certain aspects of our motivational profiles, namely the fact that we're incentivized by these things beyond just material incentives. Um, and, and the reason why that's important is I also argue that, you know, the fact that firms are going to be coordinated by norms doesn't mean that we just have carte blanche and we can just sort of say like, right, it's norms. So now let's make these all the norms we want uh, because efficiency is still important. And so, I, so what I argue is that we have there's this space for moral theorizing between what I call the, the viability horizons, which is that you need to have enough um, norm governed productivity within a firm in order to get people to cooperate in ways they wouldn't cooperate in, in the open market. But you can't have so many, you can't, the, it, the norms can't be so thick that they prevent people from cooperating at all, right? Or they make it too costly or too time consuming to cooperate at all, because then you're sort of undermining the whole reason why you have a firm in the first place. 
And what the third section of the fur of the the fur, what the third section of the book tries to do, it tries to say, look, here's ways we can try and think about how we ought to alter the corporate firm in our society. Here's ways that we can think about how to change the law surrounding corporations. Here's ways we can rethink business ethics, taking both the the norms seriously, but without discarding or disavowing the efficiency that name that firms have to care about. And you talk a bit in this section of the book, you talk throughout the book about sort of the role of law, mm-hmm. which again is distinct from sort of norms and and falls to a degree into regulatory policy areas. But you do talk about sort of the the sort of role of law. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I mean, um, and this is something that uh, David, uh, I believe you pronounce his last name, Sheepley? Um I, David, if you're listening, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. But uh, but one thing that he's done really, really well in his work, specifically his article in Ameri- uh, in APSR from a couple years ago, um, which is really demonstrate that corporations are these juridical institutions. That is, that they're not things that we can just create through um, just through spontaneous contracting. They're things that need to be created through law by a sovereign in some ways. They think they're not things that we can create from the ground up, as it were. They have to sort of be created and bestowed and structured through law. And so the idea is that if you're talking about corporate firms, you're necessarily talking about law. You're necessarily talking about these things that are created through law and subject to various legal um, codes and institutions. Um, what makes corporations interesting uh, is, and this is to to borrow from um, Eric Ortz, uh, uh, legal theorist at Wharton, captures this really well. He says, you know, the, the corporations' uh, relationship to law is both jurispathic and jurisgenetic, and so by that it's sort of, which is I, I like those terms even though they're kind of annoying in certain ways, but uh, but I, I really like them. But what the idea there right, is that they are both subject to law, the law of the land, and can potentially break those laws, but they're subject to those laws. But they also generate laws within them, right? So they create bylaws for people that fall within their purview in various ways. Uh, and so what makes corporations interesting from a legal perspective is both trying to think how they ought to be subject to law, but also how to subject their law, their internal lawmaking in various ways. Um, and so they, they are sort of interesting legal entities that are doing a variety of things with regard to laws as well as norms. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that also obviously makes them interesting to study for those of us on the political theory side of the equation. Exactly. Um, because there, as again, you sort of talk about this, there are microcosms where a number of things are going on in terms of sovereignty and hierarchy and so forth. But there are also entities within our broader sort of theoretical and political constructs. Um, which is why I, I found the book really interesting and and complex, but really sort of makes you consider these beings that we kind of sort of put aside a lot of the time, as you note in the book, as political theorists, um, but that we should reintegrate them into our conversation. Um, 
I wanted to ask you one last question. You sort of say towards the end of the introduction, very end of the introduction, that you're hoping that political theorists will take you and the argument seriously, and also that the economists will, but you're not so hopeful that they will. <laughs> Can you explain that a little bit? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that was, that was just sort of a little bit of snark. Uh, uh, you I know. know. <laughs> um, but no, I, I mean, in many ways, because it really is written from the perspective of political theory, right? So it's looking at you know, I try to take the economics literature really seriously because I find it fascinating and very insightful. But ultimately, I'm usually doing that for political theory purposes, right? So trying to understand what this means in terms of how we understand, you know, what, what the theory of transaction cost means for um, the normative expectations that we ought to have with regards to certain institutions and so on. Um, and, you know, so the idea is there, I'm, I'm speaking to political theorists uh, and it means you know, and you you can see this when people do it, when people from other disciplines do it with you, where, you know, I'm taking from economics, but not really giving back in the same way. Uh, or, or, you know, to put it differently, I'm, I'm not speaking to the same types of concerns necessarily that economists have. Uh, and so, I, you know, I sort of understand why it would be slightly underwhelming, but I am trying to take these ideas quite seriously uh, in and hopefully um, in ways that that people who, are, you know, economists engaged in these debates uh find helpful or at least, you know, appreciate that I'm trying. <laughs> and, and that, you know, again, you, as I said earlier, and, and as I think what you're doing in the book, you're marrying, you know, sort of two aspects of two disciplines together in ways where they aren't usually married, at least in conversation with one another. Um, and that's what I thought the book was really interesting in doing, um, cause I'm always one for interdisciplinary conversations. Um, so Abe, may I ask you, what are you working on now? Uh, yeah. Um, so I guess on a few things. So, uh, on this score, there's a couple of projects that I have in the works. Uh, one is trying to clarify stuff about, uh, the doctrine of corporate personality, and what it means and what it doesn't mean and how we should approach, you know, questions about constitutional rights uh, and democratic legitimacy when we think about corporate personality. Uh, and then there's a larger project that I'm working on with a, with a colleague on um, corporations, business ethics and democratic theory and trying to articulate the democratic stakes involved in various types of corporate decision making and corporate action. Uh, and trying to articulate to people in those in those spaces, in the managerial spaces, uh, and in the business ethics spaces, um, trying to convince them that democratic, you know, democracy matters, and how their decisions and their behaviors affect and can undermine or hamper or help and um, embolden democratic norms and procedures. So when that book is done, will you come back on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me about it? I'm writing it so I can do that. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, oh. this, this has been a real pleasure, actually. I listen to this podcast all the time. So this is like really, really lovely. It was a real, it was, it, I was smiling when you were introducing the book. I was like, oh, that's my name that she's saying. That's awesome. Um, so uh, Abe Singer. Um, the Form of the Firm, A Normative Political Theory of the Corporation, available from Oxford University Press. Is there a bricks and mortar store that you'd like to give a shout out to? 
Oh, I, I would. So if you're in the New York area in around in or around New York City and you ever find yourself in the Hudson Valley, stop by Bronx River Books. It's a wonderful independent bookstore uh, in Westchester. Fantastic place. Um, and definitely visit them. I think they have they have a couple copies of the book, but they can also copies. get it. They can also get it for you, you know, but it's just a fantastic bookstore that's really, really worth checking out. Well, I always like to have authors pitch their their favorite brick and mortar store where somebody can pick up their book. Mm -hmm. um, so if one is in Westchester, one can get it there. But of course, one can also get it at um, Oxford University Press's website, I assume. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your book. Thank you so much for having me. Again, real pleasure. It's my pleasure. <laughs>